Hi everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and I have been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. And this is our question show, your questions, my answers. So wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just write it down, I'll gather them up, and I will answer them here. And a reminder that I record this show every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, right here on YouTube. So if you want to join the conversation live, and you should, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I stick around for much longer than the question show that you're watching today. Although we don't have any cool pictures when I'm doing this live, but still, it's a lot of fun. You should definitely show up. There'll be another event for whatever is the next show coming up somewhere here on the channel. Now you're going to see some codes in the questions and those are the secret code essentially the chance for you to vote to let me know what you thought was the best question the best answer just use that code in the comments down below and then we will count them up and we will announce the winner in one of the upcoming weeks so go ahead and use that you can just like use the word or use it and then ask the rest of your question or, or whatever, but just whatever we can do to figure out what kinds of questions you really love. And that way I can fine tune my answers and get better at this. All right, let's get into this week's questions. Andrew Singleton, watching other videos through YouTube, I've heard of something called the cosmic neutrino background. And theoretically, we could gain observations about the early universe through it. Is that more or less likely than the Big Bang array? I personally think getting any kind of neutrino detector going on that scale and resolution needed for a WMAP style image is a pipe dream. Just because I can't wrap my head around it doesn't mean it isn't worth considering unless the numbers have already been run. All right, let's talk about cosmic background radiations. Now, the one you're most familiar with is going to be the cosmic microwave background radiation. And what that really is, is the cosmic light background radiation the radiation from photons that were released when the universe was about 380,000 years old. And this was the time when the universe became transparent and light could finally escape. So we've got that cosmic microwave background. And of course, astronomers have used this to map out the size of the universe, the age of the universe, so many features, the density of the universe, the amount of dark matter in the universe. The joke that I always make is that all roads lead to the cosmic microwave background radiation. Like, what am I going to have for lunch tomorrow? Check the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's probably in there. But the big problem, the big limit to the cosmic microwave background is it ends 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And so we've got this really interesting time before that, when say, the entire universe was like one big red giant star. And the time before that, when the entire universe was like the core of a star. And when the universe was like the radiative zone of a star. And the time when it might have been so compressed that primordial mass black holes might have formed. And times when the fundamental forces, we don't understand them, came together. First formed in the just the first few seconds after the Big Bang. And there were two other forms of radiation that were released at that point. The first one is the gravitational waves. And so... Early on in the universe, we talked about this last week, maybe the week before that, that there were gravitational waves released into the universe from 
the initial hijinks that the universe got up to as NASA was moving around. And so you've got those gravitational waves from the beginning of the universe, these ripples, these after effects of the actual formation, the echoes of the Big Bang, and they are not limited by the cosmic microwave background, they are going to be released, fly off into space, pass right through that time when the universe was completely opaque was like the core of a star, the gravitational waves don't care. And so if we build this Big Bang observer, that is 12 Lisa's in formation, we might very well see these ripples left over from the Big Bang, and it would just be one of the most useful tools that astronomers could get their hands on because it would just allow them to finally see through the cosmic microwave background and see the beginning of the universe. But the other one is the neutrino background. And this is the one that you mentioned. Now neutrinos are produced in stellar reactions. We know that there are tons and tons of neutrinos streaming out of the sun. We know that there are neutrinos that stream out of supernova explosions. And the beginning of the universe was kind of like the sun and kind of like a supernova explosion, and almost certainly has been releasing neutrinos out into the universe. The problem is that they're very difficult to detect. Neutrinos are almost impossible to detect. It's only when you've got this really enormous source of neutrinos right next door, the sun, that you actually stand a chance of being able to detect them. But when it's this diffuse glow across the entire universe, it's really tricky to do. How will we find them? The best instrument for finding neutrinos right now is called Ice Cube. It is this giant one kilometer cube of ice in Antarctica that has these instruments bored through the ice, and they're waiting and listening for the occasional time when a neutrino passes through, bonks into a molecule of water, releases a cascade of particles, and the scientists are able to detect the cascade of particles and use that to figure out what kind of neutrino it was, where it was coming from, and so on. And the folks at IceCube are working on an enhanced version of this that's going to be a 10 kilometer cubic block of ice. And it will, it's not going to have the same density as the core ice cube right now. It's going to have lower density on the outer areas, but it's still going to create a much bigger instrument. And in theory, the extended ice cube instrument will be capable of detecting this cosmic neutrino background. And if it can't, then go to 100 cubic kilometers. And eventually, we should find that. And one of the cool things about neutrinos, for example, right, is like during a supernova, when you are detecting a supernova, you check the radiation from a supernova, the first thing to arrive are the neutrinos. And the neutrinos are going slower than the speed of light. And yet, they arrive before the actual light, the radiation that comes from the supernova. Why is that happening? Because neutrinos don't interact with anything. They just pass right through all of the stellar material. So you get the, the core of the star, the supernova goes off, the neutrinos are released, they pass right through the core of the star and out into space and they make their way towards us. But then you've got the essentially the explosion of the supernova, the radiation is piling up inside, it can't get out. And so finally, the star has to tear itself apart. And then that radiation from the supernova can finally be released. And it can be minutes later 
than when the neutrinos are coming. And so astronomers are working on this method of detecting supernova in that if they detect this bright flash of neutrinos from a specific source, they can turn their telescopes and watch moments later as the supernova itself goes off it has to be fairly close. But so far, astronomers are waiting for the chance to catch a supernova in the act. And so the point being that when at the beginning of the universe at the point when the whole universe was starting to generate neutrinos, they were able to pass right through the entire universe that was acting like a star and get out into space. And so we should be able to detect it and it should give us answers about the early universe to just moments within the first couple of minutes after the Big Bang. It's very exciting. It's one, you know, gravitational, if we get that gravitational wave background, that neutrino background, and then add that to the cosmic microwave background, that's the trifecta. That would be amazing. Peter, is it possible for gravitational waves to heat a planet when passing through? How big of an amplitude or frequency should it be? Now, I don't know the actual amplitude or frequency, but all gravitational waves passing through planet Earth are going to be heating up the Earth a tiny little bit. They're going to be transferring a tiny little bit of energy from the gravitational wave to the Earth. And the gravitational wave is going to lose a little bit of energy because of conservation of energy. How do we know this? Well, we detect gravitational waves with the gravitational wave detectors with with LIGO and Virgo and Kagra and other gravitational wave detectors that are coming online. Their very job is to convert the energy that is being transmitted by a gravitational wave into some kind of signal that a computer can detect. And you couldn't do that without some kind of transfer. There's no free lunch. We obey all the laws of thermodynamics in uh, in the universe. And so the very act of detecting gravitational waves means that they are transmitting energy to your detector. And so in theory, you are harvesting a tiny little bit of energy from the gravitational wave. Now, will this idea scale up? You know, could you build cover the world in gravitational wave detectors and use that to absorb all the gravitational waves that are passing through the Earth? Probably not doesn't sound like the most efficient and effective way to gather energy. But you are doing it a little bit. Crazy fingers. I've got a question. Why does Sirius change color, but not other stars? Is it because it's brighter? Do all stars change color, but you don't notice this as much? If you look at Sirius, and just like stare at it, Sirius, the dog star, the brightest star in the sky, it'll look like it's changing colors, it's going from pure white to blue to kind of yellowish. And people have done these amazing long exposures of the star where they they'll like unfocus their camera and they'll take a picture every couple of seconds. And you can just see it's going from purple to yellow to green to all these different colors. And what's going on is that the bright light of the star is passing through the atmosphere and the atmosphere is refracting the light from the star and causing some of the light to make it in one specific wavelength to your eyeballs. And then the light, the atmosphere is wibbly wobbling and changing. And now it's causing it to refract in a different way and it's changing the color. And all stars do this to some effect. It's just that Sirius is so bright that it's very visible for you to be able to do it. And, you know, one of the related questions is why stars 
twinkle while the planets don't. And partly it's because the planets are actually tiny little circles on the sky. They're not a point source the way a star is. They're actually a little disk, even though you can't see it with your own eyes. But once you look in a telescope or binoculars, you can actually see the disk. And so the disk is moving around in space and kind of parts of it are overlapping where it was moments ago when the atmosphere is distorting its motion around it, while a star is actually jumping around, never in the same place twice. And so stars twinkle while planets don't. But that effect is all comes down to the atmosphere's distortion of stars and planets as you're watching them go out into space, become a space telescope, and you won't see any of those problems. All the stars will look like steady beams of energy. So will the planets. It must be really weird to go to space and see the universe and see it not twinkle and change at all because you're outside of the atmosphere. Nutty Gaines, Fraser, I'm confused. If nothing can escape a black hole, how can we see the radiation from the black hole? Love your videos. When we see radiation coming from a black hole, we're not seeing the radiation coming from the black hole. We're seeing it from the environment around the black hole. So when you've got a black hole, it is has an event horizon of a certain size. And when material falls down into the black hole, conservational momentum gets it spinning around and around the black hole faster and faster and faster. And that material is essentially trying to go into the black hole, but it's also trying to spin away from the black hole. And so it's held in this balance between going in and flying away. It can't get away. It's held by the gravity. And so more material piles in, more material piles in, and you get this torus, this donut, this disk of material around the black hole, which piles up and gets hotter and hotter. And eventually around a supermassive black hole, it turns into a star that is orbiting around the black hole, like a star. It's not actually a star, but it behaves like a star. It is fusing hydrogen into helium. It is releasing an enormous amount of energy, and it is casting out this, this energy into space, kind of like a star. And it's really just waiting to die. It's like the final scream of material before it goes into the black hole. And then when you add to that, that the black hole is spinning, like in some cases, 70% the speed of light, it is tangling up space time, its magnetic fields are twisting and turning around with the secretion disk. And it just creates these beams of magnetism that go above and below the black hole that channel this material up and down the poles of the black hole. And so if we are looking straight down the gun sights of an actively feeding black hole, that has got this huge swirling mass of material around it. It's got this, this, this magnetic tunnel gun of material blow, blasting out of it, then you can see this very bright radiation. But yet, if you could get really close to the black hole, you would see this like super bright accretion disk around it, you would see these pillars coming above and below it. And then inside of that, you would see this really bright area, the photon ring where where light is being pulled around in a circle around the black hole. And then inside that, you would see nothing. You would just have the event horizon of the black hole, this sphere, where whatever made it into that event horizon, now it's gone for good. No radiation is coming from that. It's only coming from the area around the black hole. And the analogy that I always like to use 
is imagine you're in the bathtub and you pull the plug on the bathtub and the water is trying to get into the drain, but it can't because the drain is only so big. And so the water will start to turn around the drain, but it's all going down the drain in the end. And it's the same thing with a black hole, I guess, except for all the stuff that gets kicked back out because it's in such a bizarre, hostile environment around the black hole. I speak whale. What ideas are there for humans to pass the radiation in the Van Allen belt? So the Van Allen belts are a region around the Earth that are filled with intense radiation. And what's happening is the magnetic field of the Earth is capturing particles that are coming from the sun and swirling them and trapping them around in this giant field around the Earth. It's kind of like a donut around the Earth. So it is sort of thickest around the equator of the Earth. And it actually comes in a couple of shells around the Earth. It's much less thick above and below the Earth. And the Van Allen belts were discovered by Van Allen. They did a bunch of tests back, I think, in like the 1960s, 50s, when they first started to launch satellites and started to detect this this radiation belt. And Earth isn't the only one. Jupiter has its own version of the Van Allen belts, except they're incredibly more powerful. And so your question was, how do we get through them? And the way you get through them is sort of two parts. One is you go quickly, that when you launch on a rocket, you are blasting off at at least eight kilometers per second. But probably a lot faster than that. If you're going to try and go to the moon, you're trying to go to space. And so you're really only going to spend a short period of time in the Van Allen belts before you're out of them. Because they only extend for 10s of 1000s of kilometers around the Earth. And so you're passing through that region fairly quickly. And yeah, you are going to experience additional radiation and don't stay there. Like don't stop and just go like, we made it to the Van Allen belt. Let's build a space station here. It's a bad idea. It's trapped radiation. You don't want to be there. So you go fast. And then the second thing is that you can go above them and below them. And so if you're going to go to the moon, say the moon is sometimes a little bit above the Earth's equator, sometimes a little below the Earth's equator. And so what you do is you chart a trajectory that takes you a little bit above the van, the main density of the Van Allen belts and off towards the moon. And then the other thing is that the Van Allen belts will rise and shrink depending on the activity from the sun. And so you can go during a time when solar activity is at a minimum, and then the amount of radiation is the least. So you time it, you go quickly, and you chart a course where you miss the vast majority of the radiation. And when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, they were carrying radiation sensors that was tracking the amount of radiation that they were experiencing. And they had a limit of how much radiation they could handle. And in the end, when they came back, they only experienced about like 1% of the maximum amount that they were expected to receive the part where NASA would panic. And so at no point did any of the astronauts receive a significant amount of radiation in their one week trip to the moon. Now, if you go to deep space for a lot longer, say you're going to go to Mars, then it's the cosmic radiation that's going to be building up over time that you really want to worry about. The Van Allen belts, trapped radiation, it's not that big of a deal. More questions in a second, but first, I'd like to thank our patrons, William E. Krauss, Frederick Hanya Kram Jensen, James Roger, Ged O'Loughlin, 
Thomas Palm, Marion Good, Dan Redondo, In Support of Understanding, Tyler Schnarr, Mike Gilbert, and the rest of our 1,029 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today, and I'll also remove all the ads from the Universe Today website for life. Nikita Kuznetsov. In order to connect two ends of a wormhole, say from Proxima Centauri to Earth, wouldn't someone from Proxima need to drill a hole from Proxima Centauri in one end and one from the Earth? Wormhole is a theoretical, mathematical possibility. There is no reason to believe that wormholes actually can possibly be made. Even if they can be made, it probably isn't possible for us to keep them open. And if we can keep them open, it's probably not possible for us to put any mass into them without them collapsing instantaneously. But let's talk science fiction, right? Stargate, let's do it. So the trick with a wormhole is you generate a wormhole in your laboratory, whether it's on Earth or you do it in Proxima Centauri. And then you put one end of the wormhole in a spaceship and you fly it and it's stretching out between the two points until you've arrived at Proxima Centauri. You somehow set it up and boom, you've got your Stargate, you walk through from Earth and you arrive at Proxima Centauri. The cool thing about this is that as you're flying from Earth to Proxima Centauri, you're going to be experiencing some amount of time dilation because you're just moving like unless you want to move at a snail's pace, you're going to be moving it at some high percentage of the speed of light. And because of that, the time from when you go into the wormhole and the time when you come out from the wormhole are going to be different. If you go really close to the speed of light, you could be off by a couple of years. And so it would be two years, you could go backwards in time. And in fact, if you brought that wormhole back from Proxima Centauri back to Earth, you'd now have the wormhole that was sitting here, the entrance, and then the other part that went all the way to Proxima Centauri at 99% the speed of light and came all the way back. And now the two ends of the wormhole are at different times of the universe. And so you could travel backwards and forwards in time just by tra traversing the wormhole. But again, it's science fiction. It is some math that seemed interesting to Einstein at the time. But there's no reason to believe this is real. So but hey, it works in science fiction. And like Stargate is the best show out there. So I, I would love for them. People always ask me like, what, which kind of advanced space travel would you like? Do you like warp drives? No, I want wormholes. I want to be able to just like walk in on one side and walk out on the other side. Perfect. That sounds really civilized to me. How tester. The James Webb has been such a letdown for the layman. I get that astronomers are excited, but to us, nothing's worth $10 billion. Please explain what's so great or gonna be so great. I'm not sure that I can, because I'm not sure what it is that you were expecting. I mean, James Webb is about four times as powerful as the Hubble Space Telescope, four times the resolution. So imagine that I showed you uh, some really important text, but it was kind of blurry, and you couldn't read it. And it was, I don't know, the recipe to make your uh, family recipe, and you're going to be the hero of the dinner time, and you're ready to make this recipe, and you just can't make out what's on the page. And you're like, I guess we're ordering pizza. 
It's just a four times resolution. But what was blurry out of focus with Hubble with other telescopes suddenly becomes crisp and in focus with James Webb. Also, James Webb is an infrared observatory, it sees into a wavelength of light that Hubble just can't do can't ever do the closest that could do that was the Spitzer Space Telescope and Webb is, I don't know, an order of magnitude more powerful than Spitzer was, but you're still not going to see a beautiful picture of an exoplanet, or you're going to see some swirling galaxy at the beginning of the universe. Like, like, what were you hoping to hear? We've, we've detected aliens at the beginning of the universe. So all of the observations that astronomers have been making, they can now make with dramatically more precision, the questions which were inconclusive have become conclusive. What they they saw a hint, maybe possibly of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of an exoplanet or water vapor in an exoplanet becomes a clear unambiguous signal that there is absolutely water vapor in the atmosphere of that planet. And so Webb is a Swiss army knife of infrared astronomical observing, you want to look close to the beginning of time and answer some fundamental questions about how the universe itself started to get constructed by all the different pieces coming together. James Webb is your tool, you want to be able to peer through the gas and dust of a newly forming planetary system and actually watch in real time as the planets come together. James Webb is your tool, you want to be able to peer down into the heart of the Milky Way and see through all the gas and dust that is obscuring our vision to the, the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. James Webb is your tool. I don't know what would make you feel like it was worth $10 billion. But to astronomers, it is the delivery of an instrument that finally lets them answer these questions in this unambiguous way. When before, a lot of the time they just had to kind of go, I don't know, it's maybe water vapor, maybe, who can say. And I think like in general, you not being excited about the outcomes of James Webb so far in the two months that it's been operational out of the 20 years that it's expected to be operational is I think you not being in the weeds enough and really learning about the day to day or month to month or year to year changes that are happening in space and astronomy. And the analogy that I always like to use is like sports. Like I don't follow sports. And so if you came to me and said, Oh, the I don't know, the Boston Vikings got a new forwardsman uh, to shoot the hockey stick puck. He's got a RBI of plus 7% with no errors. I'd be like, how much did they pay for this guy? Um, I, I don't really understand what that means. And and yet, if you were talking to a person who had been following the every single change and update from the Boston Vikings, um, then you would be excited because you would know that that's an upgrade. Um, or if you play video games, right? And you are attempting to beat some boss, 
and all of your gear is is top slot, but one piece of gear is just crap and you can't seem to upgrade it. And you finally get the upgrade that now you've got the DPS to be able to take out that boss. And now you stand a chance of, of surviving and you know the mechanics. It's the upgrade that you needed to get you there. And James Webb is the upgrade. So it might not be for you, but for the astronomers, they couldn't be happier. Kevin Sullivan. Hey, Fraser, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about telescopes looking back through time? I can't really think of a lot of misconceptions. I mean, I think people get this idea that the speed of light is moving at the speed of light. And so when you are observing something like a star, you're seeing it backwards in time. But I find that people get a little rules lawyerish, a little persnickety when we talk about events happening now. And even though those events happened in the past, like, obviously, when we are looking at Jupiter, we are seeing Jupiter as it looked, you know, a couple of hours ago, when we are seeing Andromeda, we are seeing it as it looked 2.5 million years ago. As we are looking at the cosmic microwave background, we are looking at it as it appeared 13.8 billion light years ago. Obviously, we, we know that. And so people always feel the need to remind me that that's the case. But the more the reason why it's not correct is because of relativity, that the amount of time that has elapsed since an event has happened is different, depending on the observer. When I say this galaxy just had a supernova explode in it, I'll get some lawyer go well, actually, the supernova happened 30 million years ago. And we're just seeing the light now. I'm like, I know that we're just seeing the light now. But did it happen 30 million years ago? Because you're moving, the galaxy's moving. What about an observer who is also 30 million light years away from the galaxy, but they've been moving at a different speed? Did the supernova explosion happen to them 30 million years ago? Or did it only happen to them 27 million years ago? And then time dilation has changed the amount of time that's elapsed since when the light got to them. And shall we run that for every single person in the entire universe, every location in the entire universe? No. So when we communicate events that happen in the universe, we communicate them at the speed of causality. In other words, there is this sphere of radiation, of causality, of, of, of communication that is happening from some event. And whenever you see this event, then you can say it happened because it happened for you. It wasn't happening for you, and then it happened for you, and then you're able to say that. So I think that's the biggest misconception, is that when a person tells me that I don't understand or I don't realize that light takes time to move, um, they're wrong. I do get it, but also the answer is not as simple as they think. And it's like they know just enough to get themselves into trouble. And I would say that is the biggest misconception. But I don't want to spend this time just every time I talk about an event happening. So I just, I just eat it. I just take it. I just go silent 
and just let them be correct in their mind. JTV, quick question. Any news on that space elevator that we all used to talk about? No news. I mean, there's probably some news. I mean, there's probably some some space elevator proponents somewhere who are having a conference this year and they're going to present a bunch of ideas about space elevators. But it has definitely dropped in the common science journalism communication. And I think the big reason for that is because of Starship, that we are on the cusp of seeing a fully reusable two-stage rocket chip that is going to bring the cost of launching payloads to orbit below $100 per kilogram, in theory. I mean, obviously, we need to wait and, and find out whether or not this thing actually launches. The space elevator had been proposed that it would be the machine that would bring the cost of taking stuff to space to the $100 per kilogram regime, maybe a little cheaper than that. But it's hard to beat the efficiency and simplicity of building a giant rocket in the desert in Texas, filling it with your payload and then reusing it as many times as you want. Like it's just simple. And it's relatively inexpensive. And if you need one more rocket, because launching 100 tons to orbit every six hours isn't fast enough, then you just build another one. And, you know, I think that a lot of the demand for for orbital flights will be completely relieved by Starship within like a week, maybe a month, a month of Starship flying at its full cadence will gobble up every single thing that anybody's ever wanted to fly to space. And then Starships are going to fly with Starlinks, and they're going to fly with fuel, and they're going to fly with test mass. I don't know what they're going to fly with. Like they're out of satellites to fly. And so we need to have this entirely new industry pop up that can digest the drop in costs that come from a fully reusable two-stage rocket. And you don't get all of the downsides like a tether of carbon nanotubes that stretches most of the way from the Earth beyond geosynchronous stationary orbit, or you have to put an asteroid in geostationary orbit to be able to tether your giant space elevator to the bandwidth of a space elevator is actually very low when you think about it, like you've got an elevator that you can fill with cargo, and then you can have it start going up the the elevator. Well, there's only so many of those you can put on the elevator at one time before they they start to break the tensile strength of the elevator itself. So you're going to be limited. It's really hard to run energy, like solar panels that can power these lifting vehicles, they go up and down the elevator. So at this point, I think the possibility of a two stage reusable rocket system that's going to bring launch costs down to $100 a kilogram, just answers the question of why would you build a space elevator? Because you didn't have Starship. And now you have Starship, you don't need to build a space elevator. But I'd be glad to be proven wrong. I would love for, well, no, I, I like I want Starship to come in at $100 a kilogram. But I, be, like a space elevator would be cool. They had one in Foundation. They've, they've had them in science fiction. It's a cool idea. Now, space elevators do make a ton of sense on the moon, maybe on Mars. But it's the very limits of the laws of physics to try and put one here on Earth. So I don't think we're going to ever see one. And the other thing that I think about is that there's going to be a limit to how much stuff we're actually going to want to fly to space. Like right now, space is expensive. There's a lot of stuff we'd like to fly to space. 
our imaginations are soaring. But we'll get to a point where we've got infrastructure in space. We've got orbital factories that are gathering material from dismantled asteroids and they're building various electronics and other stuff in space, out in space. The need to launch stuff from Earth is going to go down and down and down until eventually you're going to have passenger flights. A few people are going to be like, I want to go to space. And they're going to hop in a starship and they're going to fly to space. But the total demand of spaceflight will drop to almost zero because we're done. We launched our infrastructure into space and now space is keeping things in space. And as we all know, say it with me, gravity wells are for suckers. And you don't want to go down into a gravity well if you can avoid it. Stay in space. All right, those were all the questions that we had this week. Thank you everyone who asked them in the YouTube comments, everyone who showed up for the live show and joined me 5pm Pacific Mondays. It was awesome. Remember the codes. Give some support to the people who asked cool questions. And I guess I answered them. Okay, put in that code in the comments below and we will tally them up and let you know who the winner was. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next week. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 55,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the Galaxy Wanderers. And a special thanks to Josh Schultz and Andrew M. Gross who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.